Hello and welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, I'm the pastor at WBC. It's good to have you with us for this session. This is our regular teaching slot, weekly teaching slot, and we're just beginning a new sequence this time, looking at the 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. So Matthew 18 will be our location for the next few sessions. Slightly different way of going about preparing for these, uh, because we're doing something called round table preaching. Now that doesn't mean that I'm going to be stood in front of a round table. You can see from the view behind me that I'm not doing that today. I am in fact out and about at Hellwell Beach, just uh, in Watch It. But uh, what round table preaching means is that some of the preparation for it is done collaboratively. So a bunch of people sit around a table just in someone's living room and talk about what we discover in the passage and then it's down to one of those people to come away and deliver uh, the teaching on it. It's the thing that we do bringing the Holy Spirit into how we do it and we also trust that the Holy Spirit is with those who are listening as we deliver this teaching. So we're going to be looking at the first chunk of Matthew 18 but before we do that let's pray together. Lord be with us. Lord Jesus by your power inspire us, by your Spirit guide us and for the glory of your Father would you let us see the kingdom in what we learn today. Amen. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them and he said truly I tell you unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me if anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me to stumble it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble such things must come but woe to the person through whom they come if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Okay, we're going to kick off with some context here. Let's just tackle a few things quickly. We need to, when we look at any scripture, look at its context and for this it's important that we look at the back end of chapter 17 because the beginning of chapter 18 um, doesn't stand in isolation yeah? something came before it and actually with chapter markers being something that was added much later it's probably important to think about what the author wanted us to take from one section to the next so first of all I noticed that in 17 verse 23 um, the disciples are filled with grief and then within a few verses we get to 18 chapter 1 they are discussing I think not necessarily um, with any sense of generosity towards each other who is the, who is the greatest or, or who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven so it's interesting to see that, that uh, progression the second thing I think is worth noting is that quite possibly some of this stuff is taking place inside Peter's house now it's not said this happens inside Peter's house but what we do get is these tax collectors uh, at the end of chapter 17 who are coming to collect the temple tax 
wanting Peter to answer for himself and for Jesus about whether they're going to pay it or not. That might just be because Peter was a recognisable figure, but I just wonder whether it's to do with it being Peter's house that they come to. Uh, 17 verse 25, Peter came to the house, Jesus was the first to speak. It's going to be somebody's house. The third thing I want to draw your attention to is that in that passage at the end of chapter 17, we do get this sense of, um, of children, references to children in the kingdom. And I think that might be significant because the beginning of chapter 18 talks a lot about children. And that's where we're going to focus a good amount of our time. So, in the year 2001, a film came out which I got to know very well. We got to know it very well because in that same year, my eldest was born, Lucy. And Lucy became a big fan of this film, the film Shrek, animated adventure film, the first animation from the DreamWorks studio. It stars Mike Myers and Cameron Diaz and Eddie Murphy and a handful of other people. Shrek is an ogre and he lives in a swamp. And he is really quite stuck in his ways. Not only is he a bit stuck in his ways, but he's quite cynical too. He's quite um, defensive about his circumstances. He feels that the world doesn't understand him, that the world doesn't have a space for him. And actually, he is quite frequently under attack from the world. So this defensiveness and this cynicism leads to him to be quite a closed character and quite a grumpy one too. He doesn't like the idea of being hurt. So he just builds up this sort of sense of protection around himself. And at one point, in conversation with uh, another key character who's a donkey and is called Donkey, um, he talks about this sense that ogres like himself, like Shrek, um, are perhaps more complicated than they first appear. He says they're like onions because they have many layers. And he hides behind his layers Indeed, he's given the chance to talk about um, layers in the, in the context of cake. And he says, no, ogres are not like cakes, ogres are like onions. Now he's having this conversation with Donkey, and Donkey represents a very different outlook on the world. Donkey is uh, a little bit naive, perhaps. Um, definitely enthusiastic uh, and quite vulnerable and quite adventurous too. Donkey is um, excitable, and I suppose in these ways, quite childlike. Ultimately, Donkey gets through to Shrek by the end of the film by showing how petty and inflexible he has become, and how he really does need to make space for Donkey's childlike approach and the friendship that Donkey is willing to offer. Shrek eventually accepts these and they work together to resolve the story. In our passage, in those first five verses at the beginning of Matthew 18, there is a definite emphasis on the childlike. Jesus makes this point by bringing a child into the conversation physically. He doesn't just say, imagine what a child is like. He brings a child in and gets that child to stand among his disciples. I'm aware of some commentators who are convinced this would have been a girl rather than a boy because of the point that Jesus is trying to make, arguably, about status or significance. At that time, um, in first century Roman Empire, 
children had no status. Parents who had lots of children had greater status because of the number of children they had, but children didn't have status themselves. And so Jesus is trying to say, look, there's a, there's a thing that goes on here in terms of how we see significance in the life of the church. If the question is, who's the greatest? Then let's start by looking at what children bring. Now I'm at you know, pains to point out here that I don't for a moment think Jesus is calling for the church to be built around a childishness. But I think he is saying there is a childlike quality to healthy discipleship and that quality is to be looked for and embraced and welcomed and, and made the most of. There's something he's saying I think about how children can teach adults, can teach a church how to approach the world, how to understand Jesus himself. So it's not childishness but childlikeness remember that in Matthew 10 Jesus says that he's sending out his um, his disciples and they are to be um, innocent like doves but smart savvy um, cunning I think this might be one translation like snakes so there is to be an intelligence to how his disciples go out into the world and yet there is still room for this childlike attitude I think in some ways this passage can be seen as a kind of championing of young, raw, passionate faith in Jesus. If you've been around churches for any length of time, you'll be familiar with the idea that, that sometimes disciples lose their first love. They lose that immediate excitement about following Jesus. They, they lose that sense of unfiltered devotion that has much more to do with who Jesus is than what structures we end up falling into as ways of um, being faithful or obedient to him. Those structures can be helpful. Uh, very often they are the things that keep us going. And I think in, in previous, um, with previous passages, I've talked about the importance of rhythm and routine and having those around you who will help you keep those rhythms in a healthy place. But there is still this, alongside that, the sense that sometimes a, a disciple's first love, first sort of passion, first... Um, excitement, sense of adventure in following Jesus can get lost. In Romans 14, chapter 1, Paul writes this, except the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. I'd imagine most churches find they have no shortage of disputable matters. But Paul seems at pains to talk about making space for those whose faith isn't in the same place that yours is in, and certainly not pushing them out or making them feel less because their faith is a different place. He, he illustrates this by talking about food sacrifice to idols and whether it can be eaten or not. And there's a certain amount of sort of postmodern thinking in this kind of acceptance that people's consciences will do different things with the same information and that there should still be room for all of those. And I think perhaps something of that is what Jesus is driving at here. The church, I think Jesus will tell us, is not a place to pursue status. Now I'd imagine most of us don't feel that we do that. I'd imagine you'd be hard pressed to find a disciple who says, yes, I am always in church trying to drive my own status and make myself feel important or tell other people how important I am. But I think it's a temptation that most of us suffer. 
that we end up thinking, well, I know how this is supposed to work. And actually, I think my role is to influence others to make sure it works the way I believe it should work, because that's an expression of faithfulness. Perhaps what Paul would say is those who are happy eating food sacrificed to idols um, are being faithful. They have good reasons for that. And those who refuse to eat it are also being faithful. and They have good reasons for that. What is the point of falling out and risking damaging each other's faith by making such a big deal of these kinds of issues? There's something in the childlike that brings passion and, and wonder and openness and a, a determination to be trusting. Kind of a kind of a constructive naivety. There's an, a willingness to to be uninhibited. Something about the way David worships in dance uh, when he's king, and, and his um, his first wife is very unhappy with this and feels it's undignified and inappropriate behaviour for a king. But you can see it as a kind of outpouring of the uninhibited joy of the presence of Jesus, and that is something that is quite childlike. And I think you may have come across situations where there's some music on at a party or a, a family do or a wedding or something and the children are just giving it everything they've got. Lots of energy going into their dancing and it's not particularly coordinated. It's not designed to be something other people can dance with. They're just going for it. It's not just children either but, but there is that childlike quality to that being uninhibited. And also a recognition that we see childlikeness when we see oppression, when we see somebody in our community or perhaps in our church who appears to be suffering from being trodden down. You know, to, to their, their perspective is not heard. Their view is squashed. Their ability to contribute is being limited by somebody else or some other set of circumstances. There's a trustful dependence in childlikeness. Not least because a child cannot bring about their own status. In fact, when a child tries to, they tend to look a bit silly. And sometimes adults who are trying to bring about their own status can end up looking silly too. I'm drawn to the passage that Paul writes in Philippians 2, where he writes this. Uh, that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Adults who assert themselves, who assert their strength and their wisdom, are not what Jesus is looking for in his church. It's my perspective that this whole chapter is about relationships within the church and that we see a kind of progression of maturity. So let's, let's talk here about the childlikeness and, and how we might inhabit that. And as the chapter goes on, we, we seem to see different approaches to relationships that seem to draw on the assumptions of different levels of maturity or standing in the church and how people might express that. But... Adults who are looking to assert their own wisdom and strength, that is not what Jesus is looking for. It does not bear out how Jesus brought his own strength to bear on the lives of those around him. He operated from a place of vulnerability uh, and service. Many years before Shrek, there was another film, 1971 I think it is, um, made by Disney called Bedknobs and Broomsticks and it's one of those amazing sort of part animated part um, uh, live action things 
has sequences in it, a bit like Mary Poppins does, where there, there are people moving around in an animated environment. In that film, the two adult characters are, well, it's, I always think of him as a con artist pretending to be a wizard, um, or at least a wizard who is conning other people into thinking he can teach them how to do it. So there's him, and then there's a, an apprentice witch as well, played by Angela Lansbury. And Angela Lansbury's character has taken in, against her better judgment, three evacuee children from London. Uh, and they discover she's an apprentice witch and there's all kinds of, you know, how does she get them to keep this quiet kind of stuff goes on. And the apprentice witch, um, whose character name I can't remember, believes she has a way to help the war effort, which is to be able to make inanimate objects move by themselves. So that... Um, you could send inanimate objects into battle rather than risking human lives and you'd have a lot more resources at your disposal to win that war. It is set in 1941, I think. And so there's a search on for the spell that's needed in order to make this magic work. The magic is called substitutionary locomotion. And they go searching and searching for the right words for this spell and they believe they found them. And then when they come back from their magical adventure, the the medallion that they're on has dissolved because it couldn't travel across the magical threshold or something like that. It's a long time since I watched it, but I remember some bits. The youngest of the children is called Paul, and Paul has a picture book that he loves to read. And in that picture book, there is a picture of the medallion, and it has the words on it. And do you know what? Paul tries quite hard in his little voice way to say... You don't need to do all this faffing and worrying about how you're going to find the magic words because I've got a picture of the medallion here and the adults in their grown-upness with all their wisdom and their planning don't really listen to him. They don't hear what he has to offer. And eventually he gets his point across. And having done so, they're then able to use the spell, turn inanimate objects into moving things and win a very humble but nonetheless impressive victory um, when a small invasion of German forces, Nazi forces, arrives on the south coast of England. I hope I haven't ruined the film for anybody. They've been so hung up doing things the grown-up way that this little boy, with his childlike trust, his childlike engagement with his picture book, the things he has to bring are lost and forgotten. And the child's trust, the little boy's called Paul, his trust in the apprentice witch is at the heart of this story because she she has to persuade him that it's okay for him not to tell anybody that, he's, that she's a witch. And she puts that trust to work. She builds it by offering him a magical gift that they use together. And so that his, his trustfulness of her is then... It just bears fruit as he then gives back something of his understanding as well. And trust, I think, is really important. When you think about what it is to be childlike, trust is kind of an antidote to overconfidence. If you trust others, you haven't got to depend on your own confidence, your uncertainty about your own circumstances. When you trust others, you haven't got to be the one who has all the answers. When you trust others, you know that you're safe even if you don't know what's going to happen or how it's going to work. To use the sort of slightly jargony word, trust is a kind of an antidote to, to hubris. 
and also trust prompts adventure. The adventure that Donkey goes on with Shrek. Donkey is able to go with him and bring about the change that comes because Donkey trusts Shrek, even though Shrek hasn't given him much reason to do so. Paul, this little boy in Bedknobs and Brimsticks, trusts the trainee witch and that means that the adventure works out eventually. Trust prompts adventure and I do wonder sometimes whether the childlikeness of trust, because there isn't there, when, when we're childlike we do trust and, and we put our, our concerns into other people's hands and we enable them to not work out the way we imagined because we trust the person who's going to look after things for us. Trust leads to us going places that we otherwise wouldn't go. And as I reflect on where the church has been over the last couple of hundred years, I do wonder whether part of the challenge that it's faced is that it has left behind that sense of childlikeness. Maybe a bit like Shrek, it's got a little bit defensive and a little bit cynical about the world. It feels a little bit vulnerable to what the world might throw at it. And so it's just hidden behind layers with its cynicism and its defensiveness and its distrust, maybe. And perhaps that's meant that it's become a um, kind of mono-generational church. You know, the, the, the thing that drives the church is a particular generation, and, and not necessarily about age, but about attitude. I don't know, you, you've probably come across people in their late teens, early 20s who seem to see the world like a 40 or 50-year-old would do. And I think quite often the church has been, in the past, maybe still today, very happy to to welcome the energy of these younger people in, provided that they see the world in that kind of generational way. I don't want to stick numbers on what that generation might be like, but I'm, I'm hoping I'm giving the right, a helpful impression of how churches can be stuck with an outlook that only comes from one place. And because it doesn't welcome the childlike perspective, doesn't welcome that vulnerability and look to do that trust, it hasn't always served well those who are being discipled within it. This, I think, leads to us asking questions about what the church expects. There's a um, 1995 Montel Williams pop song called This Is How We Do It, and there's a, ref there's a refrain all the way through. <laughs> These guys in the um, doing the backing thing is that over and over again they go this is how we do it this is how we do it and and there's this refrain which you know it's a song about partying and enjoying yourself but I do wonder whether sometimes in all kinds of circumstances in life there is a set expected way for how things work this is how we do it not that not this with some added bits on but just this and that's not just the case for churches it's the case for lots of things but it is the case I believe in churches that we can end up very much saying this is how we do it and as a result, it, that has an impact on how we engage with those who don't think like we do or don't look like we do. I think in years gone by, there's been a problem in lots of churches, particularly outside the bigger cities. Not, not that churches inside cities don't have this problem, but it's, it's kind of other cultures aren't necessarily welcome because we don't have much experience of them. Now, if you're um, African or Asian or South American or... Um, Central American, even if you're North American or Australian, you don't necessarily get how we do these things. So, you know, we'll only listen to you for a bit and we'll kind of ignore the things that we don't like. 
I was reminded this week of Vincent Donovan's book, uh, Rediscovering, I think it's Rediscovering Christianity. Vincent Donovan, the Catholic priest who became a missionary to the Maasai people in Africa, um, who discovered that they had things to teach him about how God works. And they taught him because the way they saw God was different from the way he did, because culturally they came from a different place. And he recognised as a North American white Western Catholic man that he didn't have a monopoly on how to understand how God works and what God is like. He had to learn from other cultural points of view. In Bedknobs and Brimsticks, the trainee witch had to learn from Paul's picture book. In Shrek, Shrek had to learn from the naivety and the adventurousness and the trust, the childlikeness of Donkey. What is it that we expect of others that gives us a headache when we see it? Somebody walked in to um, one of our smaller gatherings or even to our altogether stuff twice a month and they had facial tattoos. Would we find that difficult? Not would we reject them and turn them away. I don't think that's what we would do at WBC. But would we, would we find that we, it was more difficult to listen, to hear what they had to offer because they presented so differently from you and me. Perhaps if we see somebody and they brought a notebook with them um, and in, in the notebook it's all doodles and nothing edifying has been written down, do we do perhaps think less of their engagement? Perhaps if somebody is texting on their phone during prayers, perhaps we think, well, they're not doing this right, so I'm not sure how comfortable I am with that. There's all kinds of things that can end up with us being quite prescriptive Bearing in mind that Matthew's Gospel is a Gospel that tackles the Pharisee approach. We need to be aware that when Jesus says, be childlike, the author of the Gospel is trying to highlight something to us, quite possibly that pushes back against that Pharisee way of doing things. We need to ask ourselves again the question, what do we expect to happen first? When people come and join our community, do they need to believe the right things first before they belong? Do they ever have behave the right way before they belong? Or do we allow them to belong first? And then we think about the believing and the behaving as we get to know them, as they walk with us, like a child would. And indeed, do we allow children to be children when they're with us? Or do we expect them to be like little miniature grown-ups straight away? Because that's how we do things in church. I want to, just as we come towards the end of this, have a quick dip back into Matthew 13. So in the third of the discourses of Jesus in Matthew, we get this parable of the wheat and the weeds. And in that parable, Jesus says um, that there are, there's a, a guy who owns a field and that field um, is growing wheat, but it's also uh, the servants discover growing weeds as well. And there is a concern among the servants that the weeds shouldn't be there. And so they go to the owner of the field and said, do you want us to take out the, the, the weeds? And the owner says, no, don't, because there's a risk that you take out wheat by accident. And I just want to sort of pop back to that because I want us to recognise that as we look at how we accept people, about how we make room for the childlike, about how we serve those who um, don't do it how we do it, as we perhaps hide behind our layers, that we need to be aware that the, the risk of doing that is that we end up discarding wheat thinking that it's weeds we end up looking 
not to nourish every plant in the hope that it will bear fruit, but picking and choosing which plants we want to nourish because we've already decided whether they're going to be fruitful or not. Welcoming the child then is an indicator. It's not an indicator of whether we're nice people, it's an indicator of how we see the kingdom working. It's an indication of whether we are those who are willing to look past that tendency to favouritism that James highlights in James 2. Whether we look past that and say we will provide welcome and you know not not at the expense of um, the health of our um, community. Now we need to be careful that we we don't make space for false teachers and end up being led the wrong way. But I think we are we should be able to use discernment rather than rule keeping as a way to progress. We should be able to walk with people in their testimony rather than just in their presentation as a way of, of encouraging them to be part of the kingdom that Jesus is king of. Finally, I want us to just ask ourselves whether we believe that church is a place for learning. I'd imagine you'd say yes. And if that's the case, then I think one of the things that Jesus is looking to pinpoint with this little passage, these five verses, is the idea that childlikeness includes a willingness to learn. And perhaps the Pharisees were recognisable as those who felt that they didn't have anything more that they had to learn. They might choose to pivot their understanding or be excited about some revelation, but really they felt they'd kind of arrived already. And does this passage challenge that legalism? That sense that there is nothing new to learn. Let's be a church that makes room. Let's be a church that looks to be childlike, but not childish. Let's be a church that makes space for younger people, those younger in faith, those with a sense of adventure still, those with a passion. Let's do everything we can to make space for all of those things. Amen. Okay, as ever, we're asking questions. Three questions. And question one this time round is this. How are you learning from children? In your discipleship, in your way of doing church, how are you learning from children? Question two. Write down five, this is how we do it, things about how you do church. What are the things that you expect to happen? These are the ways that we do it. And then when, you, when you've written those five things down, look at them again and challenge them. Don't necessarily throw them out. That might not be the right thing to do, but look at them and say, are any of these a little stumbling block for whether other people feel at home uh, with me in the fellowship of Jesus? Question three, what are your layers? Shrek had those layers, those onion layers uh, that sometimes he hid behind and, and um, that he felt protected him from a world that didn't understand him. What are your layers? What are the things that are around you that help you feel safe but also perhaps stop you from embracing that childlikeness? Okay, that's it from me this time round. We're gonna pray uh, and then we're gonna part company. Let's pray now. Lord, would you provide us with people around us who are childlike, actual children, but also others whose enthusiasm 
whose passion is for something of you. Would you provide them for us so that we can learn from them, so that they can lift us perhaps out of uh, any ways in which we've become stuck. And would you bless us um, by providing for us those who help us see your kingdom as a place of adventure and trust. Amen. Thanks very much for being with us. We'll see you soon.